Thank you, brethren. And let me just say, as you turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 3, how thankful I am for this opportunity to be with you. I've had some opportunities this week to spend some quality time with some of you, and I thank the Lord for that. And I trust our studies in Ephesians have been edifying and encouraging to us. And we want to come now in chapter 3 to his second prayer, Paul's second prayer for these Ephesian Christians. Remember the first prayer was in chapter 1, beginning in verse 15. We looked at that before, and we'll begin our reading then in verse 14 now of Ephesians chapter 3. For this reason, Paul says, I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width, the length, the depth, and the height to know the love of Christ, which passes knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all we ask or think, according to the power that works in us, to him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Powerful statements in this prayer, isn't it? And so I'm titling the message out of the end of verse 19, Filled with all the fullness of God. You ever meditated on that? This is what Paul is praying. He's not talking about what he's praying for them when they're glorified after they die. He's talking about now. In this present life. In these decaying bodies that have an old nature that is contrary to God all the time. And is always battling, lusting contrary to the Holy Spirit, who we also have in this body, right? So there's this internal warfare going on within us. We have the evil one working outside of us, the prince of the power of the air. As he talks about in chapter 2. And is it really possible for you and I, as children of God, to be filled with all the fullness of God. Well, he wouldn't pray this prayer if it wasn't possible, would it? Now, this idea of fullness continues in chapter 4, where Paul, praying for the ministry amongst the saints, the ministry of the Word of God through evangelists and pastor teachers, he says in verse 12, for the equipping of the saints, this is the goal of ministry of the word, equipping the saints for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all, how long will that go on? Till we all come to the unity of the faith, 
and in the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of what? The fullness of Christ. So his prayer in chapter 3 is that we might be filled with all the fullness of God. His statement in chapter 4, explaining the work of the ministry, what we're doing now, the study of the Word of God, is that we might be brought to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ in our person. And then in chapter 5, he'll say in verse 18, Do not be drunk with wine in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. <laughs> so each person of the Godhead is involved in this filling. Being filled with the fullness of God, being brought to the measure of the fullness of Christ, and that happens as we are be, being filled or continuously Filling ourselves with the Spirit. And you want to know, well, what does that look like? Well, he tells us in chapter 6 that the Spirit, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. So, being filled with the Spirit is being filled with the Word of God. Good. That's the link. That's how we see the Apostle's mind working. But I want us to think for a minute at what we were and what he's brought us to. We looked a little bit at this on Friday night, so it's a little bit repetitive for some of you on that, but think what he says going back, first of all, to chapter 2, the first three verses. You he made alive, chapter 2, verse 1, who were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. This is you in front of your mirror. This is your old nature. Take a good look at it. Because only by doing this are we really going to fulfill the prayer of chapter 3. Entering into an experience of the love of Christ in a greater way. This is the love of Christ being shown, right? That while we were among whom, verse 3 of chapter 2, we once conducted ourselves, our conduct, in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as all the other lost people in the world today. Children of wrath. But not only that. This is what I call biblical psychology. Right? There's secular psychology. Psychology just means study of the soul. Suke is a soul in the Greek, so the study of the soul. There is a biblical psychology. Look what he says in chapter 2, verse 11. Therefore, remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision in the flesh made by hands, that in the, that time you were in what kind of a condition? Without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope, and without God in the world. Oh, that's not so good, is it? No hope without God in the world. That was you. That was me. 
And then thirdly, he has another statement of it in chapter 4, beginning in verse 17. This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord, that you should no longer walk or live as the rest of the Gentiles, that is, as unbelievers live. You shouldn't live like that anymore. In, and he's going to explain what that looked like, what, what our lives looked like before we were saved. In the futility of their mind. Remember we had a commercial years ago when I was a kid. The mind is a terrible thing to waste. This is a wasted mind. A, a, a virtual wasteland. Which is the mind of every unbeliever that you and I know. Do you believe that? That's what the Word of God says. And that was your mind and mine before we were saved. Futility, vanity, uselessness, not having a purpose, see? And then he goes on to say in verse 18 of chapter 4, having their understanding, the part of their mind, one of the great faculties of our mind as people made in the image and likeness of God. Understanding, having their understanding, what? Darkened. No light. You begin, as you see these verses, to understand why our world is as lost as it is. Being alienated from the life of God. Use that word alienated in chapter 2, being aliens of the commonwealth of Israel. Well, how about being alienated from the life of God? That's the place of death, isn't it? That's the spiritual death that the Lord said would come in Genesis chapter 2 and 3. Because of the ignorance that is in them. They don't like to think that they're ignorant, do they? That's not politically correct. The Bible says they're ignorant. That means agonosis. It just means without knowledge and understanding. Without knowledge and understanding, being ignorant of what? Ignorant of who they are. Ignorant of God. Ignorant of who Jesus Christ is. Ignorant of why He died that horrible death on the cross. Ignorant of what's coming on this world and the judgment to come. Ignorant of the coming judgment for them for all eternity. Ignorant of how horrible they are in the sight of God and their lost condition. That's a terrible ignorance, isn't it? But that isn't all, he says, because of the blindness of their heart. These are the people you and I witness to. You see why we have to pray for them to be born again? You look at someone like this, you say, this, this is impossible. That's right. And it was impossible that you and I could be saved too. But with God, all things are possible, see. He says, who being past feeling. This is why some of the crimes that we read about today and that we hear about having no sensitivity, being past feeling, have given themselves over to lewdness. This is what we see on the television, most of it, and, and coming out of the movie industry in Hollywood, California, and, and what we see on the Internet. They've totally given over to lewdness, vileness. To have no respect for their own bodies and not respecting the bodies of other people either. 
And beloved, we are only entering into this. This is going to get far worse before the Lord comes back, according to the word of God. According to the word of God, the Lord Jesus said it's going to be like in the days of Noah. And so you go back to Genesis 6 and you read about the days of Noah. And what do we read? That the thoughts of the intents of their heart was only evil continually. We haven't gotten to that yet. But we're not far from it. And so that's why even years later after the flood, Abraham goes to Egypt and he's worried his wife, they're both old, and, but she's still pretty. And he's worried, well, Pharaoh sees you and he, he believes in harems and he's going to take you into his harem. I mean, and the, and the 300 Nigerian girls that have been just, just taken from their school to be brought into someone's harem or to be used as slaves, whatever they're going to do with them. That's just the tip of the iceberg of what's coming. You see why we need to be praying? We, you see why we need to be involved? And stop just going through the motions of religion? And really get involved in what God is doing in this world? Have given themselves over to lewdness to work all unclean, not, I wish he just said work some uncleanness, but the Bible says to work all uncleanness with greediness. He says, but you've not so learned Christ. <laughs> Each one of these statements in chapter 2, the beginning part of the chapter, in chapter 2.11 that I read, in chapter 4.17, all reverse with a but now or but God. God's divine intervention. He has intervened into your life and into mine. I hope you're happy about that. I am. I'm so glad He did. I'm glad He did for me and I'm more glad He did for you. That's the attitude He wants us to have. So I want you to think about this and why I'm taking time to do this, you say, brother, this sounds like pretty negative, brother. The reason I want to do this is because I want to invite you and exhort you and encourage you to do something. This week or the next week or the next week, sometime in the near future, the Lord should lead you to do this. To sit down and write down all of these descriptions that I've just read to you. Write them down on a sheet of paper. And then add some more that you maybe know about in your own life, what they were before. Okay, that's one column. And then next to it, in another column, write down, that's what you were redeemed from. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. I thought there was a few saved souls in here. That's what we were redeemed from. But then you... You don't stop there. Thank God we don't stop there. You make another column and list what you've been redeemed to. So just to give you an example, I would put in, at the beginning of this list, from dead to alive. That's chapter 2, verse 1, isn't it? From being occupied with this world and Satan, the prince of the power of the air, to being occupied with God's authority by his word and his spirit at work within us. From to, right? 
from disobedience to being zealous for doing good works. Chapter 2, verse 10. From purposelessness to being his masterpiece, which has all kinds of ideas of purpose and meaning and significance. He elaborates on them in this letter. From sons of disobedience to sons of God by adoption. From children of wrath to children of light. Ephesians 5.8, right? From being afar off from God, way off, <laughs> to being brought near through the blood of Christ. That's just part of the list, isn't it? I encourage you to do that. Because it's only, I believe, as we do that, that we are going to be able to fulfill what Paul's prayer is saying here in chapter 3. Follow along with me. He says in verse 14, for this reason. Now, it's interesting. For this reason is how chapter 3, verse 1 began. And it seems as though many commentaries believe this, and you can make a good case for it, that Paul says, for this reason. And then he says in chapter 3, verse 1, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ, for you Gentiles... And then he moves into explaining his own ministry of taking the gospel to the Gentiles. And he says, the reason I'm in prison is because I took the gospel to you, Gentiles. If I had just taken it to the Jewish people and didn't take it to the Gentiles, guess what? I'd be a free man. I wouldn't be in prison. So what is he demonstrating by just that statement alone? self Sacrificial love. The very thing he's praying for them to enter into in the end of the chapter. He's saying the reason I'm in prison is so you could be saved. Oh. Would you go to prison that others might be saved? That's practical, isn't it? I don't think I'm at that place yet, to be honest with you. The Lord may bring some of us to that place. There are other missionaries in the world that have been brought to that place and are doing that very thing. They're imprisoned for their faith. And that one sister that in northern Africa that they're getting ready to, to kill because of her faith. As far as I know, she's still standing strong. God bless her. We need to be praying for people like that. They're on the front lines, man. We need to be praying for people like that. You and I may be called to that before our lifetime and journey is done. Are you ready? Are you getting ready for that? That's what Paul's praying that you would. He's praying that for all of us, see. But Paul seems then, he begins in verse 1 of chapter 3, for this reason, I, Paul, and then he takes a diversion, if you will, to explain the privilege that was his to take the gospel to the Gentiles and to explain the truth of the church, the mystery of the church, and the unsearchable riches of Christ. Unsearchable means there's, it's a well with no bottom to it. You, the more you plumb the depths of that well, you never get to the bottom. You never run out of talking about the glories of Jesus Christ. Do you believe that? Do you get bored when we try to do that at the Lord's Supper? 
We're just trying to do that. We're just trying to do that in our weakness and frailty. Does that bore you? Would you rather us talk about someone else? Would you rather us talk about some great leader in the world or some great coach in your life or, or your parents or someone else? See? And I, and I offer this challenge to you. Do you come prepared to say something nice about the Lord Jesus? If the, if the Holy Spirit should move you to get up and do that, you men. And you sisters certainly can do it silently, and I know you do. That's our privilege, beloved. But what Paul seems to be moving toward then, in verse 1 of chapter 3 then, he comes back to in chapter 3, verse 14, with the statement again, for this reason. That's the link. But you notice this prayer is a little different than the prayer in chapter 1. In chapter 1 and verse 15, he says, that after I heard of your faith and your love for all the saints, do not cease to give thanks for you, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ might enlighten you with certain truths. And we've talked about that already. Now in chapter 3, he's praying it's a different prayer. Now we... We've already, I've already taken the time to explain to you the uniqueness of the epistle of the Ephesians and why the, these kinds of prayers that he has, long prayers in Ephesians compared to other prayers we have in the New Testament, only appear in this, this letter. We should ask ourselves that. And, and why the, the armor of God in chapter 6 is explained in such detail. Why just to the Ephesians did he do that? I've heard some... Bible teachers say, I love to read and study Ephesians because it's one, one book in the New Testament where there were no problems in the church. Oh, really? Oh, really? Have you read chapter 2 of Revelation? There was no problems in that church? They were about to lose their testimony. There were no problems in that church? He says in chapter 6 of this letter, when he concludes it, he says, Grace to be with all those who love our Lord Jesus Christ in what? In sincerity. Which means there were a lot of hyper-religious people that were there that talked the talk, but they didn't walk the walk, see? They talked about how they loved the Lord, but they didn't, they didn't really live it. <laughs> and when he gets to... 30 years later to write the letter to the seven churches. And in Ephesus, he says, I have this against you. Isn't that what he says? The Lord Jesus from heaven in his exalted position. So was there a problem in this church? They were just formal and they were just going through the motions. They had all the knowledge. Ooh, he talks about their knowledge. They had a lot of knowledge, just like a lot of assemblies do. But they don't have love. And that's why he's praying for this, this prayer in chapter 3. Balanced Christian life, right? I, I've drawn it in my journal just because I'm a visual thinker. I'm a visual learner. You know, the scales of justice there. And, and there's knowledge or truth or the word on one side. And there's character and love and the other and they both they know, both need to be kept in balance, don't they? Not all doctrine with no love. That's that's an unbalanced Christian life. 
The whole letter of 1 John is written to clarify that, isn't it? The seven letters to the seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3 are written to clarify that. And I'd submit to you Ephesians is too. So this may be a little bit of a rebuke to us. It is to me. I'm thankful to minister amongst the Lord's people who love the word of God. And we love to teach it and to examine it in detail and to see the glories of it. But we've got to be careful. We better be living it too. So Paul prays for light in chapter 1 that they might know, enter into, be enlightened in, this, in, the, in the soul of their being about certain truths. But then in chapter 3 he says, I'm praying that you also will experience God's love. And he says, in this prayer he bows his knees, doesn't he? <laughs> He didn't bow his knees in the prayer in chapter 1. When it gets to this one, he says, I bow my knees because my posture is, to his mind, important. I'm begging God to do this amongst you. Does that mean there might have been a need? And we need to be praying this for ourselves and for our assemblies too. On our knees, if we can. Some of us have physical limitations. Hey, God understands that. I'm thankful the old cartilage is still holding up. You know, I can still get out there with Andreas and, and play soccer. And, but I know that the day's coming that uh, that old cartilage isn't going to... Joe's told me what some of the things I can take, you know, doctor. But getting on our knees to pray. What a privilege. And he says, we pray for the whole family, verse 15. Now, pasa is the Greek word used and some of your translations may say every family. If, if you want to take the word pasa and translate it every, I would say every part of the family. But I like the translation that the New King James translators, the whole family in heaven and earth is named. Because he's been talking about or being adopted into the family of God in chapter 1. In chapter 2, we didn't look at this, but he talked in verse 19 about being made fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. That's the family. <laughs> Even though we were far off, alienated, without hope, without God, but now by faith in Christ... Because the gospel has given us light and we trusted in Christ. We've been made fellow citizens with the saints, the Old Testament saints, the people of Israel. We're just on equal ground. There's no second class citizenry here. That middle wall of partition that separated the, the people of Israel from the Gentiles in the temple. He says that's been abolished in Christ. Now it still exists in the world. 1 Corinthians 10 tells us there's the Jew and the Gentile and the church of God. Three different people groups, right? But the church of God is multi-ethnic, multinational, and we all are on equal standing before God. The same access. <laughs> no second class citizens. Don't let anybody sell you short. You have the same access in prayer to God every other Christian in the world does. Because of Jesus Christ and His blood. So are you using it? Are you going to Him? <laughs> You don't have to be in Jerusalem. 
You don't even have to face Jerusalem. You don't have to be wearing... I've got one of those rabbinical prayer shawls because I just thought they were neat. But, but I don't wear that to pray. I don't have to. I've done it a few times just for the effect. But I don't have to wear that to pray. You know? You can be anywhere. Any posture. Although kneeling is a good one. Paul does that with the Ephesian elders in Acts 20. Our Lord prayed in Gethsemane on His knees. Don't forget Solomon at the dedication of the temple in 1 Kings 8 gets on his knees. The greatest king probably that's ever been. Certainly the richest and the wisest prayed on his knees. The whole family in heaven and earth is named. What are you so intense about here, Paul? What is it that's on your heart that you're praying this intensely? Verse 16, that he would give you something. He's on his knees. He's thinking of the whole family in heaven and earth. Some of them, Stephen's already in heaven. He knows that. Paul was an eyewitness to the fact. One of the young people quoted Acts 7.55 when Stephen saw the Lord standing to receive him. Some of them are in heaven, some are on earth. There are a lot more in heaven now than there were in Paul's day, that's for sure. 2,000 years of church history, that He would grant you according to the wealth or riches or treasuries of His glory. How big is that? Is there any limitations to the glory of God? No. His treasury of glory is enormous. We'll never exhaust it. He says that He would grant you to be strengthened with might through His Spirit in the inner man. We know about the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. The moment that we trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, He comes to indwell us, right? Romans chapter 8, verse 9 and 10 and so forth. We know about the sealing of the Spirit. We saw in chapter 1, verse 13 and 14. But look at the word He's saying, you need to be strengthened with might through His Spirit in your inner person. Why? Because we're weak in this, and because we have an enormous degree of distractions out there. So you need God's strength by His Spirit, but you have it. If you're a born-again Christian here this morning, you have Him, I should say. And what does He need? To, what do we need to be strengthened with might for? That Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. You say, Wait a minute, I'm a Christian, I'm already Christ. No, but is Christ at home in you? You're at home in Christ, but is He at home in you, in your heart? I'm talking about every compartment. Robert Boyd Munger wrote a book, I think, in 1958. Some of us, I, it was given to me when I was born again in 82. Still a great book. My Heart, Christ's Home. And he works through the various rooms in a house. Kitchen, conservatory, library, den. And then he talks about that, that closet at the top of the stairs. And it, it took a long time for that believer he's describing to give the Lord the key to that closet. He said, no, there, that's, where those, that's where my really treasured things are. And, the, and he said, and the Lord said, well, then I, I can't dwell here in the house with you because it stinks up there. There's something stinking in that closet. And there's something stinking in your closet, too, and in mine. 
Oh yeah, there are certain compartments we give to him. He's talking about giving him access in every part of your heart. Every room, every part of your mind, your conscience, your emotions, your will. Even the stuff that you say, no, Lord, I don't want you to know about this. Or it says, uh, let me deal with it. <laughs> because when we do that, when we allow Christ to dwell in our hearts through faith, then being rooted, verse 17, look at this, using two metaphors, the metaphor of planting a, a plant with roots and the metaphor of a building with a foundation, that you being rooted and grounded in theology. Is that what he says? That you being rooted and grounded in philosophy. No. That you being rooted and grounded in the latest TV programs. That you being rooted and grounded in all the available applications on your smartphone. No, he says that you being rooted and grounded in love. Oh, does that sound too simple? No. Oh, it's one of the hardest things. That's why we have to be strengthened with might by His Spirit. See, this is one of the hardest things to happen. In a, He's talking to genuine believers here. He's not talking to unbelievers here. He's talking to genuine believers that would be rooted and grounded in love. And then He's going to expand on that. That we may be able to comprehend with all the saints... He's praying that all the saints would enter into not just us. So this is where our prayer of intercession for others, right? So not only do we have the burden of prayer request in entering into this ourselves. What about for your wife? What about for your children? What about for your neighbors? What about for the other people in the meeting? What is the width and length and depth and height? Wow, he's talking four dimensions here, right? Well, we talk about a building is defined by three dimensions, right? And I think he still has in mind that temple picture that he had at the end of chapter 2. We're the new temple now. We're the fourth of seven temples in the Bible. There's three more to come after we're taken out. And that's a fascinating study in itself. But the temple was what? Was the place of testimony where God's presence, the Shekinah glory, dwelt on planet Earth. The only place on planet Earth where it dwelt. And in the Old Testament, it was in Jerusalem. And then when Jesus Christ came, it dwelt in Him. He said, destroy this temple and I'll rebuild it. He's talking about the temple of His body. John tells us that. He was the third one. We're the fourth one. Temples of the living God. Individual stones in that temple. Peter will talk about that. Living stones, not dead ones. And has the idea of stability, testimony, place of God's presence, worship, prayer. All the things that you think about that occurred in the Old Testament temple, that's what's to occur in your heart and mind, see? That's why it's given. And that's why I study the tabernacle. If you don't go into Ephesians chapter 3, 14 to 21, you've missed something in a study of the tabernacle because that's what the tabernacle is pointing to. And you can look at the three compartments of the tabernacle as looking at our body, soul, and spirit, if you want to, where the body was the outer court. The soul was the holy place, and the holy of holies, our spirit, the, the, the most treasured place, our place of communion with God. Different things we can think about from the Word. He says, 
to know the love of God in verse 19? Bible talks about us knowing the love of God, but he uses a different word here, doesn't he? To know the love of Jesus Christ. He said, well, wait a minute. They're already saved. They had to know something about the love of Christ to be saved, didn't they? Well, sure. It doesn't take much, though, does it? To be saved. But to grow into the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, we need to be entering greater ways into the knowledge and this is experiential knowledge of the love of Christ. And he says, by the way, it passes knowledge. <laughs> In other words, it's so fantastic, the love of Christ for you and for me, that you'll never get exhausted in entering into it. And, and when we do that, he says that you may be filled, not empty, filled with some of the fullness of God. <laughs> filled with all the fullness of God. Do you want that in this life? I do. I want that for me and I want that for you. Do you pray for others for this? Do you pray this for yourself? You see what Paul's doing? He's talking about Christian maturity here, isn't he? He's talking about leaving just being a baby to being an, a, an adult, a mature person. You move from baby to young child to adolescence. And, you are, and spiritually speaking, your understanding of the gospel and of the Bible and eventually into maturity. And what does that look like? You look like the characteristics we see, some of them anyway, of God. Now, my question as I'm studying this is, the fullness of God, what does that look like? I mean, does that mean I walk around, you know, with a, with a smile all the time and I always say, good morning, how are you doing? You know, just have that fleshly energy. <laughs> the flesh can do that, right? We can have the joy of the Lord without a smile. Because a lot of people are experiencing the joy of the Lord in deep pain and humiliation and grief. So what, is he, what does that fullness of God look like? Well, that's what chapter 4 through 6 is going to explain. But let me just give you a little bit. I'm just going to open that window just a little bit and peek in. In the first two verses, first three verses of chapter 4, he begins to tell us. And look what he says. It, the fullness of God has to do with, particularly, with human relationships. He says, I beseech you to walk worthy the calling with which you were called. We, we're okay with that. That makes sense. But look at the four characteristics he lists in verse 2. And tell me how you're doing. He says, with all lowliness. By the way, the world exalts the opposite of every one of these four characteristics. The, the Greek world of the first century... They despise the word tapel frasune, which we translate lowliness. It has the idea of humility, the lowliness of mind. It's used of our Lord Jesus when he humbled himself and served others. Is that a word that attracts you to God? 
This is what the fullness of God looks like. Is this what you thought he was going to say? Did you think he was going to say, get on your white horse with your golden chariot and ride, brother and sister. Let's go. No, no. Starts with taking the lowest place in the meeting. The lowest. Does the world encourage that? Or is that how you move up in the business world? It isn't. I know. I worked 16 years out there. I climbed the corporate ladder. I know what it, what it looks like. And I see it in other people too. And I hear it when they talk. Oh, he says lowliness. But then, that's not all. The second one, my Bible translates it gentleness. Proutes, it's meekness is how it's translated usually. And meekness, I encourage you to just look that word up in your Vines Expository Dictionary. It's one of the richest words in the New Testament, one of the richest Greek words. It has a multitude of meaning, but it has the idea, one of the meanings is being teachable. Another is the idea of being sensitive to see that others get the encouragement instead of us. <laughs> we do something for God, and we can't wait to broadcast it on that big board back there with a the cork and all. Right? And especially if we can put our face in it. Let's be honest. I know it hurts. So go the other way and make sure it doesn't get announced and blown on the streets like the Pharisees used to do. Make sure nobody even knows about it. Can you do that? Serve the Lord and not tell anybody? Not even your spouse? That's a high calling. But that's what he says. Worthy of the calling with which you were called, being filled with the fullness of God. But then with long suffering. Oh, you didn't have to mention that one. Which is really the idea of being long tempered. Macro through Mia. That is not seeking to retaliate the moment somebody offends us. Oh, man. You can't even drive on 95 without this entering into your mind. Somebody cuts you off. I was here first. You get, we were talking about it last night. You get in line at the store and somebody cuts in front of you. And there's a long line. And they, they have the audacity to cut in front of you because they don't want to wait. What are you going to do? You're going to use it as an opportunity to be filled with the fullness of God? Or are you going to say, what about my rights? I was here. I've been waiting 20 minutes. You see how realistic this is? You see how this gets right down to practical living? But especially think about it in the assembly of God's people, which Paul has been saying this whole letter. The fullness of God is demonstrated in the body of Christ when we gather together. Are you long-suffering with your fellow Christians? Or do you love to attack them whenever they fall? Do you love to be the first to line up and throw a stone at them? Or rather, are you the first to come alongside and encourage them and protect them and seek to be there for them when nobody else is there for them? It's no wonder people in the world don't want to be a part of our churches. They see how we attack one another. Long-suffering. And all four of these characteristics are characteristics of God. He's demonstrated that in chapter 2, verse 1. 
through 3, in chapter 2, verse 11 through 13, and in chapter 4, 17 and following, has he not demonstrated that toward you and me? Has he been long-suffering with you? Was he long-suffering with you when he was working with you for weeks and days and years to get you to come to Christ? Was that not long-suffering? He was with me. I know that. By the illumination of the Holy Spirit, I can look back and see he'd been working with me for several years at least. And I'm not happy. I'm ashamed. I'm ashamed I should have responded when I see now who Jesus is. I should have responded right away, but I didn't. How about you? Did you make excuses? Blame others? Justify yourself? See? And then the fourth one. Oh, did you see that one? Oh, another word that the world doesn't like. Forbearance. Forbearing with one another. And then he adds in love. That same in love he talked about in chapter 3, verse 17. Forbearing with one another in love. Forbearing. Look that word up in the dictionary when you get home if you can. It's the idea of enduring offenses again. And giving time for people to come to the understanding before they acknowledge they've offended you. Forbear. Forbear with one another. Why? Because Jesus Christ did that towards you. That's one reason. But also because Paul's praying that you and I be able to comprehend the love of Christ. And you see, the love of Christ isn't some esoteric theological thing. It's down in human relationships, isn't it? And how we interact with one another. That's where we see the love of Christ at work. You see how practical this is? We'll come a little bit more into it tonight. But let me close with this. One of the Christian counseling groups, and I believe in Christian counseling that uses the Bible, and this group does, Rafa, talks about four different areas. The brethren there that have put this together talk about four different areas of bondage to sin that keep people in bondage and away from Christ. And some of these may have characterized you. I think all four of them I had. I'm I'm right there at the front of the class on this one. The first one is fear of failure. Fear of failure. The second one is fear of rejection. The third one is fear of punishment. And the fourth one is a sense of inferiority. And these brethren believe that all of the various difficulties and bondages that we enter into will fall into ultimately one of these four categories. Now, I haven't checked that out myself to make sure that it's true. There may be a fifth or sixth category, but I know from my experience with people and you know from your experience with people that these four are pretty all-encompassing. And someone who has a fear of failure, that's a real bondage, isn't it? They're always worried that They're going to make a bad decision. So guess what? They won't make a decision. And you try to get them to make a decision and they won't. I had a friend whose dad used to tell his mom, he said, just make a decision even if it's wrong. At least make a decision. (laughs) Because she struggled with that, see. 
Maybe you're like that. Or maybe you know someone like that. Or fear of rejection. Someone who has a fear of rejection, he's always going to be seeking to please people at any cost. Oh, I've got to make sure I, I don't want to... Because they, don't, they can't handle rejection. That's a real bondage, isn't it? Fear of punishment. That's guilt. We know, secular psychologists even tell us, that 80 to 85% of people in mental institutions are there because of guilt. They're in bondage to a sense of guilt, maybe from something recent in their life or something way back. Usually goes back to the childhood. It's a real bondage. You and I need to be sensitive to these things. That's why I'm going into this. This is what the love of Christ does. And then fourthly, inferiority complex. A feeling of hopelessness, worthlessness, purposelesslessness. That, that there, I, I am such a wicked person, there's no way God could use me. That kind of thinking. That, that I've wasted so many years in my life, I've made so many bad decisions, and there were reasons for some of them, but, but it's, it's hopeless. What does the gospel say? I'd, I'd suggest to you Ephesians answers all four of these because Ephesians tells us in, with regard to the first one, fear of failure, he tells, the Lord tells us in chapter 2, verse 8, that it's by grace you've been saved, not of works. What? <laughs> it's not performance-oriented religion like the Pharisees had. I grew up in one of those too. Always trying to measure up Trying to make your performance be your basis for salvation. And most of the world religions do that. That's bondage. Beloved, we have the answer. The love of Christ says, I want to save you by my grace. You can't do it. You can't save yourself. Stop trying. Right? That's a message of hope. Fear of rejection. Fear of being unaccepted. Chapter 1, verse 6 tells us you've already, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you've been accepted in the Beloved One. The most important person in the universe accepts you. That's a message of hope, isn't it? That'll set free from that bondage and that fear. The third, guilt and punishment. Chapter 1, verse 7 tells us eternally forgiven. Eternally Forgiven. You can be forgiven for all your guilt. You can lay it all at the foot of the cross. Your shame, your guilt, your bad decisions, your bad actions. Don't stay in bondage to that anymore. Come into the love of Christ that you may be able to comprehend what is the love of Christ, the length, width, height, and breadth. Right? Don't live in bondage like that anymore. Someone has said that Christians are princes and princesses, but they live like paupers because they don't recognize who Jesus Christ is and what he's done. And that can be true. Doesn't have to be, though, does it? Ephesians gives us the key to unlock that. And then fourthly, fear of inferiority or an inferiority complex. What a bondage. I've met people like that. You probably know people like that too. The answer is in chapter 2, verse 10. That person is significant in Jesus Christ, isn't he? Aren't they? When they come to Christ, they find out that 
They are his workmanship, his masterpiece. Created anew, the new creation in Christ Jesus. Unto good works, which God prepared beforehand that they might walk in them. (laughs) They're not inferior to anybody. If you're God's masterpiece, are you inferior to anybody then? No. You're his masterwork. That's how he sees you. That's how we're supposed to see you. And if one of your brethren comes up and and expresses that you're not very significant, you repeat Ephesians 2.10 right back to him. Pardon me, brother or sister. I'm a masterpiece. I was dead, but now I'm alive. I was afar off, but now I've been brought near. I had no access to God, but now I have complete access through Jesus Christ. I was a son of disobedience, but now I'm a son of God. I have significance now. And I'm entering more and more into understanding, able to comprehend the love of Jesus Christ for me as an individual, and therefore for you and others. A lot of lost people out there that need to know this message, don't they? May the Lord help us. Participate. Avail ourselves. This is magnificent truth, isn't it? (laughs) So, Father, we thank you, O Lord, for the truth that you have shown us. And we pray, Lord, as we examine chapters 4 through 6 tonight, that you expand upon what it means to walk worthy of you. And we'll see what you have for us. Lord, be with us this afternoon. Thankful for each one that's here. We pray for those who may be ill and not able to make it and be out with us. We love them too. You love them. And we love them. Help us to show that love by our actions. May they know we're Christians by our love for one another. Some of us may need to make a new start in those areas of thought. Help us to do that by your grace, by your spirit strengthening our inner man for this. And you'll get the glory and the praise that you deserve. May the Lamb who was slain receive the reward of his sufferings. We ask these things in the Lord Jesus' precious name. All God's people said, Amen.